This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWRA. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and with me again is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Nice to be with you again, Alan. And with you, Darren. Today we'll kick things off with the Prime Minister's recent trips to Vietnam and the G7 meeting in France. We'll turn then to the government's formal announcement that we are joining the United States in an international maritime security mission focused on Iran. Fourth, we'll consider the situation in Kashmir through the lens of Australian foreign policy. And finally, we'll finish with the recent ministerial delegation visit to Papua New Guinea. Now, the past few weeks have been so busy, unfortunately, we won't have time to mention the Prime Minister's even more recent trip to East Timor, for the 20th anniversary of independence and some of the complications of that bilateral relationship or draw contrasts between Timor's experience and the protests currently underway in West Papua. We'll have to save those for a future episode. So it's a long episode, so let's get right into it. And we're beginning today with the Prime Minister Morrison's recent overseas trip and his first stop was to Vietnam. Now, this was the first standalone bilateral visit by an Australian Prime Minister since Paul Keating in the 1990s, and the first visit since the countries upgraded their diplomatic relations to a strategic partnership in March of 2018. The agenda for the Prime Minister's trip was broad, with meetings scheduled to discuss economic, security and people-to-people cooperation. However, the most notable outcome from the trip probably occurred after Scott Morrison met with his counterpart, Prime Minister Nguyen of Vietnam. The leaders released a statement expressing concerns about developments in the South China Sea and calling out, quote, disruptive activities in relation to long-standing oil and gas projects. Whilst China was not mentioned by name, the meeting left little doubt as to whom and to what the leaders were discussing. Of course, Vietnam and China have overlapping maritime claims in the South China Sea. The joint statement itself is a continuation of Australia's increasingly strong language on China. For example, in November 2018, the governments of Japan, the United States and Australia signed a joint statement expressing, quote, serious concerns about negative developments, end quote, in disputed waters. Yet Australia continues to call out the behaviour and not the perpetrator. As Morrison himself said, I am not here to make accusations or do anything of that nature. We do not take sides, end quote. Alan, can you talk me through the logic of this tactic of calling out the behaviour and not the perpetrator? Should we think of it as some face-saving type of verbal gymnastics, perhaps? And would it really be more problematic if the proper noun China had appeared somewhere in the statement? Let me say a couple of things first about the visit uh, generally, Darren. I thought the choice of Vietnam on the Prime Minister's way to France was an interesting and clever decision. Although the trip has been seen through the China prism, in fact, Vietnam is increasingly important to Australia in its own right. 
it's going to be the ASEAN chair in 2020, for example, and uh, I think it's taking up a, um, a non-permanent seat on the UN Security Council. So my point there is that I don't think we should gloss over the other four pages of the joint statement that the two leaders put out, because it, it includes some significant proposals for closer economic relations and for policy consultations, including an annual leaders summit. But getting back to that expression of concern about developments in the uh, South China Sea, it's, you know, blindingly obvious that the references are, references are to China. But the emphasis is on the underlying principle that both Australia and Vietnam want to preserve. It's certainly less pointed and adversarial language than calling China out. But I can't for the life of me imagine that if we had, if they had done that, China would be more likely to back away. Uh, in fact, I, I think it would probably harden its own position. So the objective is to try to alter behaviour. It's not as though there's anything unusual about this in international diplomacy. Think about the delicate way we express our concerns about the erosion of the international trading order, for example, without ever mentioning the Trump administration. It's the principles we want to talk about, not the uh, people responsible, because that's getting into a different argument. Yes, interesting. Well, Prime Minister Morrison reflected near the end of his time in Vietnam that, and I quote, Australia and Vietnam are friends, and today, to use Australian parlance, we've gone from friends to mates, end quote. So I suppose that means there's only about 99 years and 11 months to go until we can expect a giant billboard outside the Australian embassy in Hanoi celebrating 100 years of mateship, <laughs> just like you see in Washington, D.C. Um, but let's not forget, you know, Vietnam does remain a one-party communist state that, in all fairness, is far closer to China in the way it conducts its internal affairs than to Australia. So, Alan, now that we are mates, what might we expect from the bilateral relationship into the future? Well, let me uh, go back to the past first and, br and bring in some history here, because although this was a very positive uh, visit, Australia has had a stronger bilateral relationship with Vietnam for longer than most Western countries. Uh, you mentioned Paul Keating's visit in 1991, which was the first by an Australian prime minister to a unified Vietnam. Uh, I was on that trip and Australia was the first Western country to resume aid to Hanoi after the Cambodian settlement. Mm, mm. And on the aid, by the way, as a reminder that infrastructure is not uh, a new thing in Australia's aid program. That was when we announced the funding of the Mietuan Bridge, the first cable stayed bridge over the Mekong River. And by the, the early 90s, Australian companies, uh, big ones like Telstra and BHP, had made us the third largest foreign investor in Vietnam. It's interesting to note how the attitude of the Australian Vietnamese community has changed with the, uh, with the passage of time. At around that time in the early 90s, when the Vietnamese Prime Minister made his first ever visit, not only first visit to Australia, but first visit to a Western country, uh, he was met by huge demonstrations from Vietnamese uh, uh, refugees and, uh, and new settlers 
Uh, John Howard, as leader of the opposition, actually declined to attend the state dinner for the Communist Party secretary, Day Moy, when he came in 1995 because of community hostility. Uh, that now seems to have passed, and that's interesting. So all that is to say that there is history and that there are real interests to build on here. But as you say, it is striking that we are still dealing with a communist autocracy with limited civil rights and a human rights record that the organisation Human Rights Watch describes as dire in all areas. So interests here are clearly outweighing values. Mm, and that's a common theme on this podcast, and it probably won't be the, first, the, the last time we even talk about it today. Well, let's move on to the second stop on the Prime Minister's trip, and this is, of course, when he flew to France from Vietnam to attend the G7 Leader Summit, where he had been invited to attend as a visitor, as, a, as a, an observer, by the hosting French President Emmanuel Macron. Now, whilst the international media focused, of course, on the actions of, of Donald Trump uh, and the newly minted UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and indeed also the fires in the Amazon rainforest and a surprise invitation to Iran, Australia itself made significant progress, uh, both on curbing online terror and on trade issues. For the online terror issue, Morrison announced during the meeting a new partnership with the OECD to strengthen technology company transparency in an effort to prevent online terrorism. Under the partnership, Australia, New Zealand and the OECD will fund a project to develop voluntary transparency reporting protocols for, quote, preventing, detecting and removing terrorist and violent extremist content from online platforms, end quote. The announcement's symbolism was not lost on commentators, given the French had only just launched the Christchurch call to action to curb terrorism of this kind in May. On trade, Morrison used the G7 to continue to prosecute the case for an Australia-UK and Australia-EU trade agreements. For example, following talks with Boris Johnson, Morrison suggested that a trade deal with the UK could be wrapped up within a year of Brexit being finalised, if that ever actually happens. Alan, throughout the meetings, Morrison drew attention to the fact that this was the first time Australia had been invited to the G7. Now, Morrison did this even though Kevin Rudd was invited to the G8, which was the precursor to the G7 in 2008 before Russia was booted out. Can you speculate here on, on, on why Morrison was invited and, and, I guess, putting submarines to one side? And more broadly, how would you characterise the benefits of attending meetings like this where Australia is still only an observer? I think it's a great thing that the PM was invited. He and Emmanuel Macron make, I reckon, an unlikely couple, but they've obviously hit it off. And partly I think that's because Macron, in his sort of approach to French foreign policy, is emphasising the need for diplomatic action by middle powers in the, in the face of the, uh, all the world's problems. And I think he sees Australia as a useful uh, partner in this. Morrison has responded positively, and I certainly share that view that France is one of the countries we should be working with more extensively. It's probably wise to recall, I, I don't think this was mentioned in uh, much of the Australian uh, media reporting, that Macron was able to invite a number of guests as the chair. So it wasn't just ScoMo and Australia. 
but also Burkina Faso, Chile, uh, Egypt, India, Rwanda, Senegal, Spain, and South Africa, plus the pop-up visit of the Iranian uh, foreign minister on the on the sidelines. So it wasn't super exclusive, but it was well worthwhile, as you said. You know, the advantage is that you get to talk to the people who are there, and you had some useful bilaterals on the side. You get to make a mark, as he did uh, with the uh, online terrorism initiative. So I, I think it was a very good thing. If we wind back the clock 12 months to last year's G7 summit in Canada, Donald Trump left early, did not sign on to the joint statement, and even tweeted insults at the Canadian host, Prime Minister Trudeau. So the lead-up to this year's meeting portended similar tensions But they didn't really seem to eventuate, with the overall tone of the summit clearly being more positive than the G20 meetings in Osaka, and Trump himself speaking positively of what transpired. So, Alan, is there much that you learned overall from these meetings about the state of the world, or perhaps specific issues like Iran, the Amazon fires, or trade? And what's the enduring relevance of the G7 in contrast to the G20, if any? Well, you know, reply to first question, I don't think I did learn all that much. You know, there was a focus on the Amazon fires and, you know, there were suggestions that there might be progress on Iran and those were good. But there was no sort of policy breakthrough. Mm. The G20 was established because of concerns during the global financial crisis that the Western industrialised countries of the G7 simply didn't represent the world effectively anymore. Uh, That was good news because, of course, we got a place around the G20 table. But it also soon became clear that the diversity of views in the G20 made it hard to reach broad consensus. So the argument then switched back for a while to the line that at least the G7 was small and had common values, so could cut through and get things uh, and get things done. But then that was followed by Donald Trump and that argument began to uh, look less persuasive. So President Macron didn't even try to put together a communique this year. And that's a real measure, I think, of how much more modest our international ambitions uh, have become in these times. Mm, Yeah, I guess what I was thinking about was if we have a sort of a happier, more positive tone Can we explain that through the way in which the meeting was structured, the participants, the fact that Macron wasn't trying to put together a joint statement? Do we learn anything about how to organise these meetings to achieve not a terrible outcome, even if it's a a minimal one? Or was it just that time had passed and some issues had died down, they were replaced by other issues, and so there was nothing that particularly irked Trump? You know, is, is, is this just noise? You know, some meetings are going to be positive and some meetings are going to be negative. Or is there something we can learn about, about how to organise summits in the future? Well, I think the management of Donald Trump is, <laughs> is basically the, the core issue here, uh, really. <clears throat> and Macron has been at it for a while now and seems to have, um, mm. seems to have got the knack. And it was easy to get smiles and happy pictures because you weren't trying to negotiate through any, you know, difficult language on climate change or on international trade. So I guess there are two 
answers to your question. One is that chairmanship matters, and Macron was clearly a sort of canny and and delicate mm. chair of the uh, of the meeting. And the other is that if you don't have enormously high ambitions, no one will be disappointed. And uh, that's what we got. Okay, well, let's turn next to the Strait of Hormuz, where the Australian government formally announced that it would be supporting an international maritime security mission to secure freedom of navigation in the Gulf. And, of course, we discussed this uh, in a previous episode around the OSMIN meetings in Sydney. Before we get to the details of what the government specifically committed to, it's worth providing a recap of the events in the region. Aram has been blamed for attacks on six oil tankers in or near the Strait of Hormuz, and while Tehran fervently denies the allegations, the US has released footage showing the Iranian Navy attacking a vessel in the region. Now, Australia's specific contribution to the US-led mission includes a P-8 Poseidon maritime surveillance aircraft to the Middle East for one month before the end of 2019, an Australian frigate in January 2020 for six months, and Australian Defence Force personnel to the International Maritime Security Construct headquarters in Bahrain. The decisions were supported in Australia by the Labor opposition. However, of course, the Deputy Chair of Iran's Foreign Relations Parliamentary Committee argued that the contribution would hurt the reputation and prestige of Australia. Alan, I know you spoke in our previous discussion on this topic of Australia's interests in the region that relate to freedom of shipping and how we might go about separating those interests from being caught up in the US-Iran tensions. So just let me just ask point blank here. It isn't saying yes about alliance management in that you know, we are more comfortable with the risks associated with participating than we are with the risks associated with saying no to Donald Trump? I'm sure everyone in the government would deny it, but yes, I think despite our interests in freedom of shipping, it's hard to think that alliance management, especially in advance of the PM's visit to Washington, is not front and centre here. The decision, as we said last time, is consistent with long-standing Australian naval commitments in the Gulf region and with our views on freedom of navigation plus our national interests, both direct and indirect, in energy supplies from the Gulf. But would we be doing it if we were not trying to send a message to Washington? I think not. Mm. Our contribution is time-limited. For example, the frigate has been committed for six months only. However, as we all know, previous deployments in the Middle East have been extended significantly. So how likely is it, Alan, that this time limit is and can be set in stone? Or should we expect the real possibility that Australia's contribution will drag on? And I think most importantly, is there a plausible scenario in which we are drawn into an escalation against our will? I can certainly imagine such plausible scenarios, but so can the government. Mm. There's clearly an increasingly strong view in the defence establishment and the government more broadly that Australian military resources should be refocused in the closer parts of the Indo-Pacific. So you can see from the relatively modest contribution and my own suspicion too, from the decision to deploy ADF personnel in the headquarters so that we can have an eye on what's happening, 
that Australia will continue to draw as many lines around this commitment as possible. You can see it too in the way we've continued to underline our own national support for the Iranian nuclear deal. And now, will we get away with it? Well, we'll we'll see. And I think that's all you can say at this stage. Mm. Our fourth item uh, is events in Kashmir that, as we all know, have been unfolding over the past month and began with Indian Prime Minister Modi's highly controversial decision announced on 5th of August to remove Kashmir's special status in the Indian constitution. Now, this is a very complicated situation, and neither Alan nor I are experts on the merits of the situation itself. And indeed, it would take at least an entire podcast to try to give a fair account of the arguments and the history and the context on both sides. And that's before you even get to the international dimensions that involve Pakistan and China. So rather than focusing on substance, I would like to focus on methods and, of course, Australia's response. And so here I'm interested in sort of the way in which the decision was carried out and how Australia responded to it. Now, I don't think I've ever done this before, but I'm going to rely on another publication here, The Economist, which described in the most pithy terms possible what happened. So I'm quoting from the Banyan column on August 24. Quote, The government of Narendra Modi in one swoop scrapped Jammu and Kashmir's constitutional autonomy ended its status as a state and divided into two parts, both to be ruled from Delhi. It carried this out not by consulting the region's two million-odd inhabitants on whose behalf it claims to be acting, nor after a national discussion or even the semblance of a proper parliamentary debate. Rather, it achieved its ends by cutting phone lines and access to the internet, arresting nearly the whole political leadership and imposing in effect, a curfew, end quote. So if I can offer an update to that, it took about 12 days before landline communications began to be restored, and recording today on the 6th of September, over a month later, it's not clear that the internet is back up. What's also far from clear is whether things have returned to normal in the Himalayan province. The Indian government clearly wants the world to believe that there has been a return to normalcy, but I've seen reports of over 500 protests occurring in the region in the past month and of pressure on journalists to support the normalcy narrative. Allegations of violence used against civilians continue to be reported by networks such as the BBC, but remain unverified. So with all that background, let's turn to the Australian angle. Our High Commissioner to India was asked about the situation in a doorstop interview recently on Indian TV. And she said, quote, The Indian government said this is its internal matter. We respect the Indian position on that. Australia's long-held view on Kashmir has been that this is an issue that should be resolved bilaterally by India and Pakistan. We do hope, as the situation proceeds in Kashmir, that it will be stable, peaceful, and, in fact, that economic development that we hope for eventuates. But we do hope that both countries act in restraint and consider the safety and security of the people in the process. End quote. Alan, the High Commissioner is obviously giving the official Australian government position here. Can you talk me through the trade-offs inherent in making such a neutral statement? Is there an argument for a more strongly worded version 
or would it be too costly or just pointless? Darren, we began by talking about the South China Sea and how direct Australian comments about China should have been. The difference here, I guess, is that we're not even talking about underlying principles, simply an assertion that this is a bilateral issue and that we hope for restraint. There's no reference at all to values or rule of law or suppression of free speech. The underlying reasons are fairly obvious. The Australian government doesn't want to get the Modi government offside as we deal with it on other issues in the world. So we've decided that this question of Kashmir is not a matter on which we want to take a stand. There's some history too, by the way, on on Australia's involvement in Kashmir. We were a member of the UN military observer group in India and Pakistan, supervising the ceasefire between India and Pakistan from 1951 to 1985. So we've got a a long um, engagement on this very question. Mm. If I was being provocative, I might contrast our public position on the need for China to abide by its commitments to the one country, two systems agreement on Hong Kong and the absence of any public position on India's abandonment of constitutional commitments to Kashmir. Now, my point here is not to have a go at governments or our government because they're forever balancing the different stakes that we have in interests and values, and you can never have complete consistency. My point really is just to remind all those outside government that these stakes are always hard to weigh and are never clear cut. And that's the um, murky contingent world uh, foreign policy tries to deal with. Yes, we were reflecting about this before, Alan, when we were talking. We could have a much larger conversation about Kashmir, and I even received an email from a listener who, who urged us to do so. But you know, not only are we not experts, but because our podcast is dedicated to Australian foreign policy and in understanding the events of the world through an Australian lens, we are guided and in some ways constrained in the same way that the Australian government is. It's a tension here because I would like to talk about Indian democracy. I would like to talk about some of the more controversial methods, for example, talking, you know, shutting off communications entirely to the entire province and the, and the consequences of that. But at, in Australia, we are constrained in, in how we can influence proceedings here. So I think it's important that we talk about the contrast with how we try to manage what China is doing. But I'm grappling with this. I'm struggling with it. Alan, I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on that. Well, I, do, I just say that there's a difference between the way governments grapple with the issue and the way the public in a democracy like Australia is is able to talk about it. So I don't think that just because the government weighs up the various issues and interests it has in the South China Sea or in uh, Kashmir, that uh, doesn't mean that Australians from you know a whole range of different directions and backgrounds and views of the issue shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be out there uh, debating it publicly. It's not to say that think tanks and the academics uh, shouldn't be uh, heavily involved in it all. It's just that that's not the role of government. Governments aren't think tanks and they aren't academics and they aren't advocacy groups. They're there to pursue Australia's interests and to protect our values to the extent that they can. That's a, that's a great answer, Alan. Thank you. And I think this will be revealing in terms of how I was thinking about this issue because 
My other question on this situation is to pose a counterfactual to you, Alan, and I stress here that I want you to engage in pure speculation. So let's say that the president of the US wasn't Donald Trump. Of course, the Trump administration, to my knowledge, has said very little about what's happening in Kashmir and certainly hasn't sought to put any public pressure on the Indian government. But let's say the president wasn't Donald Trump, but it was Bernie Sanders, which is not a wholly implausible scenario given the state of US politics. And I mentioned Bernie Sanders because he spoke about Kashmir at a recent event, and I'm going to quote him at length here. I am also deeply concerned about the situation in Kashmir, where the Indian government has revoked Kashmiri autonomy, cracked down on dissent, and instituted a communications blackout. The crackdown in the name of security is also denying the Kashmiri people access to medical care. Even many respected doctors in India have acknowledged that the Indian government-imposed restrictions on travel are threatening the life-saving care that patients need. India's action is unacceptable. The communications blockade must be lifted immediately and the United States government must speak out boldly in support of international humanitarian law and the support of a UN-backed peaceful resolution that respects the will of the Kashmiri people. Here is my question, Alan. Had the White House issued a statement like this and backed it up with vigorous diplomacy at the United Nations, do you think Australia's response would have been different? In other words, is this Kashmir case the kind of example where we could imagine a different unfolding of events if we had different American leadership? Well, look, th things might have been different, and under a Democrat president, a slightly louder voice may have come out of uh, Washington. But I can't imagine even uh, President Elizabeth Warren making this issue the core of the relationship between the US and India, given the wider geopolitical interests at play. So I guess my answer is that a different US position might have slightly shifted Australian language but not by much, I think. Well, let's finish off by returning closer to home and the PNG Australia Ministerial Forum held in Port Moresby on the 26th of August. Australia sent its largest delegation for a decade, including Foreign Minister Maurice Payne, Defence Minister Linda Reynolds and Finance Minister Matthias Cormann. A number of events in the month prior to the forum captured, I think, the tricky situation facing Australia's efforts to manage the bilateral relationship. First, the PNG Prime Minister James Marape visited Australia at the invitation of Scott Morrison, during which he stated that he wanted PNG to move away from an aid-donor relationship with Australia within 10 years. A few weeks later, Marape's office released a statement saying he had requested China to refinance the country's debts of almost $12 billion. Then, within a day, this statement was walked back though the PM would later say, a few weeks later, that he wouldn't rule out receiving financial help from China. In the week prior to the forum, Foreign Minister Payne confirmed that conversations were happening about some Australian funding going directly to help with a budget shortfall. Now, Australia used to provide PNG with direct budget assistance, but this was ended in June of 2000, after a period where budget support had been scaled back and replaced with funding for aid programs. 
Prime Minister Peter O'Neill's government made a similar request in 2017, but it was refused. At the forum itself, the joint statement said that, quote, ministers agreed to explore options for further support of Papua New Guinea's economic reform priorities and financing needs. However, both Payne and Matthias Cormann said in interviews that Australia was willing to help but was not considering doing so in the form of a loan or direct budgetary assistance. Alan, can you talk us through the dynamics here uh, and ignore China for a minute. What are the benefits and costs of shifting back towards direct budgetary assistance and letting the PNG government spend the money as it sees fit? Well, Australian budget support to PNG, in fact, began to be phased out in 1991 as we moved towards program aid. And the reason for that was that this gave the Australian parliament and our taxpayers, who've, let's face it, never liked providing foreign aid very much. <laughs> no. It gave them greater accountability. They could see where the money, mm. how the money was being spent. Mm. And I do think that the days of budget support aid are over. It's hard for one sovereign nation to simply hand over a cheque to another and say, spend it how you like. It's a bad idea. It's contrary to what PNG itself says it wants. And Marapo wasn't the first PNG Prime Minister to want to move away from an aid donor relationship that was on Peter O'Neill's agenda too. Australian development assistance certainly needs to respond to PNG needs, and we've got mechanisms to ensure that, but we will always want to have a say too. Okay, well, let's then bring China into the conversation. When asked about refinancing its debt in the lead-up to the forum, Prime Minister Marape did not rule out China as a possibility, saying, quote, whether it's China or India or Australia, the cheapest help we can get and the best help in terms of the loan. In quote. So I see three separate issues here. One, as you mentioned, Alan, how do we get the best outcomes for the more than half a billion in ODA that we give to PNG? Two, you know, how do we foster the best possible political relationship, especially to be perceived as respectful and, and not patronising? And three, then, the strategic concerns around the influence of China. So what's your assessment of the trade-offs here? Apart from the the China issue, you could really be talking about any point in Australia's recent relationship with PNG with those questions. When he was Secretary of DFAT, I remember Peter Voges telling the Lowy Institute that more than any other single relationship, the state of Australia's relationship with PNG was seen as the barometer of Australian foreign policy success. And Peter was right, I think, and uh, the importance and the difficulty is too infrequently recognised outside. And that's because it's a really hard task. There's lots of history and, and no little resentment playing out in the background to the relationship. The Your point about how we manage the relationship with PNG with respect and without being patronising continues to be the key point for us. Now on China, I mean, China is the second largest economy in the world. It's in this region. So we're just going to have to get used to factoring it in as a permanent presence. And it will sometimes be useful. We've seen this a uh, number of times now. It will sometimes be useful for PNG or the other forum members 
to introduce a bit of competition into their relationship with us by reaching out to Beijing. But we'd be crazy, I think, to simply try to match everything that China does or offers for our own sake and for the sake of our partners in the South Pacific. I think we need to hold strongly to the things that we say and the requirements that we make about good governance and effective investment and the role of multilateral organisations like the World Bank and the IMF. Okay, well, wrapping up today's podcast with our final segment, as always, reading, listening and watching. Alan, what are you reading, listening or watching at the moment? Well, look, I was going to uh, recommend some serious reading I've been doing, but I was on a plane back from Seoul last week and I watched the Chinese sci-fi epic, The Wandering Earth, and I thought I'd talk about that. As we know, science fiction usually reveals as much about the time it is written as about the future it foresees. So we, we can learn things from it, I think. The Wandering Earth is based on a novella by the Hugo Award-winning Chinese uh, writer Liu Shichin. The basic story is that a, a dying sun threatens to engulf Earth and the people of the planet unite in a vast global Belt and Road Initiative, and they build fusion thrusters that will propel the Earth on a 2,500-year journey to a new star system where we'll set up home. Problems arise along the way, and the, the movie's about those problems. The film is certainly not the pinnacle of Chinese art cinema, and at the other end of the sort of multiplex popular movies, Hollywood still does it better. But it does have excellent special effects, and it's become the third highest grossing movie in Chinese history. So I was interested in looking at it from that perspective. Uh, Chinese characters are central, uh, obviously central, to uh, to saving the planet. Indeed, you'll be interested to know, uh, Darren, that it was Chinese computer hackers who have a lot to do with the final uh, solution. Oh, bless them. <laughs> but it's but it's not a, it's not a Chinese uh, nationalist rant. It's you know more a portrayal of uh, China as a servant of humanity. The you know the Russians and the Brits have um, have parts in it too. There are lots of familiar tropes from every Hollywood movie you've seen. You know, rebellious young boy who becomes hero, stubborn bureaucrats who can't mm -hmm. see what's really happening, goofy sidekick who delivers the laughs. But they're familiar tropes with Chinese characteristics. For my, for my part, I particularly like the Confucian respect for the wise grandfather who helps save the day. And I'm going to advise my own grandchildren to pay close attention to that. <laughs> and this is interesting. Too, the goofy sidekick turns out to be a Chinese-Australian from Melbourne called Tim. So, look, there's there's plenty of action in the movie, though it's, uh, interestingly, there's a, a complete absence of any sort of love story or sexual tension. But sociologically and politically, it's worth a look, and it's uh, now on Netflix. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, I am also going to recommend a movie. I, I did just finish Stranger Things Season 3, which is fantastic, but the recommendation uh, today is the Quentin Tarantino film that came out recently, once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I haven't been a great fan of, of what he's done in the past decade and a half, um, but his earlier movies, uh, you know, especially Pulp Fiction and, and Kill Bill, are some of my favourites. So if you are generally a fan of his style, 
I would recommend it to you very highly. The only other thing I'll say is that I think to make the entire experience worthwhile, you do need to know the background to the Manson family. And so I'll post an article in the show notes which describes that background without giving away any spoilers. And reading that was immensely helpful in, I think, getting the full experience of the film. So I'll post a link to that in the show notes. That is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We want to thank AAA intern James Hayne for his help with research and audio editing. XE Chong also for research assistance. And as always, we are grateful to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thank you and talk to you again soon.